0: Now, if you remember, by way of introduction, chapters 8 to 11 form the the third of seven cycles in the book that describe the time between Christ's first and second comings. And we, last week, began to look at the seven trumpets. We saw the first four that brings us... Tonight to the fifth, God willing, leaving the sixth to next week in verse 13 and following. And then the seventh in some weeks out, because that's in the middle of chapter 11, beginning at verse 15. So we come then to the fifth of seven trumpets sounded by the angels. Notice Revelation 9, 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven To the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They were desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. Now, as we're going to see, the description of the locust obviously is figurative because he uses the phrase like over and over again. Verse 8 They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lions' teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Now, if you remember at the end of verse 8, the second half of verse 13, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Having had the first four trumpets sounded, um, we find that there's the anticipation of the remainder three. In verses nine or in chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, you have the first of those latter three, that is the fifth trumpet, and then the sixth trumpet, verse 13, and then, as I said, in chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh. But this all forms a unit, because we'll see, beginning in chapter 12, it starts over again. Now, there's obviously, central to this particular passage and to the sounding of the fifth trumpet, these locusts, and I want to suggest three things about them. First, their leader, and there we'll come to verses 1 and 2 and 11. And then secondly, their activity, verse 5 and following, and then we'll back up and close with their limitation in verse 4. All right, notice first of all then, their leader, A star falls from heaven. Let me just give you a a brief survey of this section so we don't lose the forest for sake of the trees. A star falls from heaven, that's Satan, who has power over a host of locusts, that's demons, who afflict or torment those who have no seal on their foreheads, that's the unconverted. All right, so that's really the passage in a nutshell. Satan is the ruler over a demonic host who torment or hurt, to use the language of verse 10, those who have not the seal on their foreheads, that is, the unsaved. And again, this is a depiction or a description of the time between Jesus' first and second comings. So this isn't so much something that will come, it's something that has come, and it's simultaneous to the previous trumpets and to the other trumpets that we'll see God willing next week. Furthermore, it's basically saying the same thing as the seven seals. It's identical teaching with varied imagery, and furthermore, the seven bulls to come. Remember, the book of Revelation consists of seven cycles, wherein John depicts the time frame between the first and second comings of Jesus, all right? So notice a few things about the locust leader. First, his fall, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. He saw a star fallen, perfect tense. It's something that's happened in the past that has present ongoing ramifications. And that the star refers to Satan is most evident from verse 11, because there he's given the name in Hebrew, Abaddon, and Greek, Apollyon. But furthermore, we find from texts like Isaiah 14, verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. That Satan is a created angelic being who, at some point in the creation week, fell from his exalted place in heaven. And if you continue to read in that passage, and he's in uh, Isaiah 14, you find that iniquity, and particularly the sin of pride, was found in him. Furthermore, as we will see in subsequent studies, in chapter 12, verse 4, We find that the dragon there, another name for Satan, when he falls from heaven with his tail, he takes a third of the stars. And so we conclude from that, that when he was removed because of his sin from heaven, he took with him a large portion of the angels and they became demons. So Satan and the demons are fallen angels. Notice that he falls from heaven to earth. And if you go back to Genesis, you find him there in the form of the serpent. All right, that's his fall. Notice secondly, his key. Verse one again. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, if we were to Look ahead in the book of Revelation, because remember, one way to interpret the book of Revelation is to look back into the prophets, particularly certain prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, but also to look ahead in the book of Revelation, because subsequent revelation, subsequent Imagery in the book of Revelation sheds light on present imagery in the book of Revelation. So we don't have to guess what the bottomless pit is because later on we find the beast comes up from the bottomless pit. And so we find that it refers to the place where fallen angels are presently held. And now another interpretive principle to understand the book of Revelation is to allow the clearer teaching, the clearer text to shine light on the less clear text, right? So if we were to go, for example, to Jude 1.6, we find the angels who did not keep their original domain, but left their own abode, that is, when Satan fell, the dragon took with him one-third of the stars. It says, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So we find that uh, these demonic beings are kept in a place, figuratively speaking, in chains. That means God has them in a place reserved for the day of judgment. And yet we find out that uh, God has given to Satan the key, that is the authority, to unleash, assumingly, all of these or a goodly amount of these, As his followers to afflict pain and torment upon mankind. And so that's why we find that uh, to this angel was given the key. That is, God gave to Satan this authority, brethren. It simply means that Satan was given from God authority to release these fallen angels, these demons. Into creation, and uh, the purpose we'll see here in a moment is to torment or hurt mankind. All right. Fifthly, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, finally, with reference to their leader, notice his name, verse eleven, and they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name. Apollyon. Both Abaddon and Apollyon, you might know, literally mean destroyer and refer to Satan's destructive power. He's the destroyer. And this is why I think primarily his demons are likened here to locusts because locusts destroy. And we learn from Jesus, don't we, that Satan himself comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So this is the idea here. Satan and his army, his his host of devils or demons, are described in such a way as to underscore their primary purpose in the world. And that is to destroy. All right, that's their leader. Notice, secondly, their activity. Verse 5. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In other words, their ability was limited by God. God hasn't given them the ability to kill men but to torment men so as to render man desirous of death. Right? That's what we read in verse 6. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. By five months is meant a specific and predetermined time. The time again between Christ's first and second comings. And I think the imagery here is Ordinarily, locusts live five months. This is the life expectancy of locusts. During that one season, they live for those months and then they die. They live rather short lives in that sense. And so because they're likened to locusts, um, they're set to torment men for five months. It just means for a predetermined and allotted time. So it's not going to happen forever. Forever. It's going to have an end when the locusts or the demons are cast back into the bottomless pit. That's what we read at the end of the Bible. Now, they're described later on, beginning at verse 7, in various ways. They're, first of all, described as a swarm of locusts, again, because locusts are known for their destructive abilities. In fact, if we had the time, we could go back to, I think it's the seventh of ten plagues back in Exodus and find out this is obviously where John is drawing from. Furthermore, if you remember, the minor prophet Joel in the first chapter describes um, locusts as a destructive force who destroyed the uh, the crops of Israel and were a shadow of the coming Babylonians. who Were also likened to locusts, who would not only who would not just dis, uh, destroy the crops, but would destroy the people. So John is obviously thinking back to these passages, and he's drawing his imagery from them. But then they're also described as they are back in those two passages in. Exodus 10 and Joel 1 and 2 as horses prepared for battle. Verse 7, the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And then again, verse 9, the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. In other words, these were powerful. They were numerous. These, These devils, these demons, they're powerful They're numerous and they're prepared for battle. That's the idea, brother. You have to take the imagery as a whole and don't try to fixate on one particular point. You probably can imagine how the exegetes uh, find a field day uh, and just literally go crazy over a passage like this with their fanciful interpretations. It's just... Graphic descriptions of the demons. They're locusts. They're destructive. They're horses. They're like swift horses who are powerful and prepared for battle. Furthermore, they have crowns on their heads. It just means that they have authority. They've been given authority. They've been given power at the end of verse 10. To hurt men five months. Their faces were like the faces of men. That means they're intelligent. Right? Brother, if you think about it, albeit it's not as clear as, as we might wish in ways, though it's much clearer than we might think. Revelation 9, verses 1 to 12, is one of the fullest descriptions of satanic activity we find in the whole of Scripture. John is describing for us demons. Those falling, fallen angelic beings, okay? They're, they're rational. They're reasonable. They're intelligent creatures. Now, just keep in mind all of these descriptions of these demons. They're powerful. They're numerous. They're destructive. And they're intelligent. I don't, to be honest, have really a whole, uh, a, a good idea as to what the first part of verse 8 means. They had hair like women's hair. If you compare that first part of the verse with the second part, but their teeth are, are like lions, it's probably saying they're deceptive. Uh, like a woman might deceive you with her hair. Because they have women's hair and yet teeth like what? Lion's teeth. And remember, Peter in 1 Peter 5 8 described Satan himself like a lion. So they're cunning. I think they're crafty, right? That's the idea here. Brother, okay, now here we are. Let's put the the puzzle together. There's a whole bunch of them. There's a whole bunch of them. Uh, Probably hundreds of thousands, if not more, right? if If not millions, if not more. There's a lot of them. They're destructive. They're fierce, they're powerful, they have authority, they have intelligence, they're deceptive and they're fierce. We learn all of that, don't we, from this highly symbolic text. Verse nine, "And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. What does that mean? Well, it means they're an army. Brother, they're, they're, they're a force to be reckoned with. They're, they're fitted for battle. These are what scripture calls unclean spirits. And thus their activity is described two times. Back in verse 5 as torment. Which means to torture or to inflict pain and anguish. And then again at the end of verse 10 their power was to hurt men, five months. Brethren, surely that's something of an understatement. If somebody were to ask you, what is the primary goal or, or aim of Satan and his demons? We could say to hurt men, right? The Lord Jesus came to give life, the text I alluded to already. And yet Satan and the demons, by inference, have come to take it. They've come to hurt. Jesus has come to bring healing. The devil's harm. (laughs) Thus the question at this point becomes, how do demons torment sinners? Or how do demons hurt sinners? Well, let me just be simplistic and summarize The ways with two words: direct possession and indirect oppression. Or perhaps we can even shorten those into into simply possession and oppression. And we're going to see those are closely related. All right, possession. And of course, by this I mean demons can possess sinners, Uh, brethren. The scriptures speak about demon possession. In fact, in the New King James, you have that exact phrase, demon possession, at least three or four times. For example, Matthew 4, 24, they brought to him those who were demon possessed. Luke 6, 18. And they brought to him those who were tormented with unclean spirits. Here we find that the Demons, the unclean spirits, if angels are clean spirits, demons are unclean spirits and they're said to torment people, right? That's what we find in our text. Acts 5.16, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were healed. So we learn this that demon possession can be cured. Right? Jesus healed them. We we know of accounts, don't we? You think of in in the Gospels, people who were possessed with devils or demons, and they were healed. Now, though the precise nature of demon possession is, is unclear, admittedly it's mysterious, Remember, these are spiritual beings, numerous, powerful, intelligent, spiritual beings who, according especially to the Gospels and the Book of Acts, can indwell people. Now, I personally think it's, we, we get a little bit of insight as to what this entails when we think about the Holy Spirit indwelling us now i'm I'm not fully prepared to say that there's um, uh, that there's that these are identical because remember demon possession is temporary wherein Christians can not be possessed of the Holy Spirit and not possessed of the Holy Spirit but if you just think of that term demon possession i mean just the, the demon possesses them brethren now if we took a time and and, and, and did a survey of the book of of the, of the Gospels and the Book of Acts especially, all the texts where you find um, people possessed of demons, we would find that while people are possessed of demons, they nevertheless act responsibly. Okay, so nobody can blame it on the devils. Those possessed of the devil or those possessed by demons act responsibly. And yet, as we look at those texts, we find that the torment that demon-possessed people endure is both physical and spiritual. We could even divide that perhaps into three categories. Physical, mental, and spiritual are just physical and spiritual. Because we're physical and spiritual beings, brethren. And when the devils or the demons possess us, they torment us. Both physically and spiritually. But secondly, there's what I'm calling oppression. And by this I mean Satan and his demons influence the overall thought and practice of this world Right? Satan and his demons influence the overall thought and practice of this world. And thus oppress its inhabitants. Okay, stop and think of a wicked ruler who oppressed his people. I'll let you fill in. You can use any example you want to. A wicked ruler who oppressed his people. Well, this is Satan and the devils. Because they are... In some sense, the ruler, remember Paul actually refers to Satan as the god of this age, of this world. Now remember, this is all beneath the sovereignty of God. But nevertheless, it's right, isn't it, to say that this world is, in some sense, ruled by Satan. And thus, those who are of this world are oppressed by Satan. They're under his rule, brethren. If Satan is who he is, then it can only be it can only be a matter of oppression to be ruled by him. For example, 1 John 5 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world lies under the oppression. The influence of the wicked one. And so scripture speaks of Satan by his demons, blinding. I think this is the nature of of torment or hurt. Blinding, deceiving, enslaving, and persecuting the world. This is what Satan does. This is what the demons do. They blind. They deceive, they enslave, and they persecute. Thus, while not every non-Christian is demon-possessed, every non-Christian is demon-oppressed. And that's why this text says that they have authority to torment every person not sealed. Remember, we saw that, that those saved are sealed. And those unsaved are not sealed and thus tormented to some degree or another. That brings us forth finally to their limitation. Verse 4. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree. I think that simply means these aren't literal locusts, brethren. John is telling us that in verse 4. And then he makes it exceedingly clear, verse 7 and following, when at least five times he uses the word like. These are not giant locusts with literal breastplates with wigs on and and faces like men. That's That's not what this text is at all teaching us. These are demons, brethren. I think that's even probably a ploy of Satan himself. That people would come to a text like this and woodenly interpret it to their own ruin. Off looking for giant locusts with breastplates and wigs. All the while the devils laugh. And so when he says in verse 4. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, the green things, or the tree. He's he's saying these are not literal locusts who did harm those things, right? But only those men. In other words, these are locusts that harm men, brethren. Right? We've seen that. But by inference, we find they don't harm certain men. But only those men, harm only those men who haven't the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, they cannot harm Christians. That's the simple meaning of this text. They cannot harm, they cannot torment, they cannot destroy Christians. So when John says that Satan and the demons cannot harm the saints, he means They cannot eternally harm them. Right? They cannot eternally harm them. So as to destroy them. For example. I think the same thing is taught us in 1 John 5.18. We know that whoever is born of God doesn't sin. That means doesn't live in sin. But he who's been born of God keeps himself. There's a textual variant there. It's. It's either referring to Jesus keeping us or Jesus enabling us to keep ourselves. Both are true. But notice the next phrase. And the wicked one does not touch him. That means touch so as to torment slash destroy. Right? Satan cannot touch them, he cannot destroy them. And I think probably the reason being is Jesus, the begotten of God, keeps us. Furthermore, we know from Scripture that no true Christian can be demon-possessed. There's many texts that would teach us this. How about 1 Corinthians 6? Don't you know that your body's a temple of God? brother? it can't be a temple of both God and the devil. Can, Can God and the devil inhabit the same house? Jesus said that can't be. The house the house divided falls. Or else we learn, for example, in James 4, or I'm sorry, 1 John 4 and 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So there's someone in the world, and by that I mean, I understand him to mean, in the world broadly and in the world Individually, right, he's controlling those in the world, and then there's one greater than that who's in us. Furthermore, if you just take those texts in the Gospels where Jesus speaks about the stronger than the strong man, right, he binds the strong man, and then he inhabits his house. So it's evident, isn't it, brethren, that Christians cannot be possessed of the devil. But to use an older phrase, and I don't mean it to be crude or rude, they can be molested of the devil. They cannot be possessed of the devil, but they can be harassed. Maybe that's a safer term. Harassed by the devil. For example, Listen to these texts, James 4, 7. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, all these texts I'm going to read here, they imply, or they actually state, that in some ways or another, we as Christians can be demon harassed. Okay? Demon harassed. That's my phrase. I actually have it right here in my notes. Christians cannot be demon possessed, but they can be demon harassed. James 4, 7. I, I alluded to already First Peter 5, 9. Resist Satan steadfast in the faith. If you think about it, you find it in, in, in many of the epistles. Of course, that classic chapter in Ephesians 6. Take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Surely, brother, these texts teach us that Christians can be and necessarily will be. Demon harassed, right? That's my point. Or else if you back up a little bit in that same chapter, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. These are all different ways of speaking of the demons. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness, In heavenly places. These are spiritual forces. These are spiritual demons. And we wrestle against them. Okay? So what I want to do in the last few minutes that we have is to, in light of those texts, James 4 7, 1 Peter 5 9, Ephesians 6, basically 10 to 20, and other texts, suggest a few things. First, the reality of demonic assault, and secondly, the remedy for it. The reality and remedy of demonic assault. Now, keep in mind, brethren, that I'm talking here to Christians who have the seal of God on their foreheads, and thus cannot be touched, cannot be hurt, cannot be tormented by our enemies. But they can and will be assaulted by our enemies. The reality of it. Brother, and I think most of us would admit that um, we have the tendency, at least, to downplay the importance of spiritual warfare. I think most of us in the room would admit we think of spiritual warfare far too. Little. And there's uh, several reasons why that's so. Let me suggest a couple. First, it's easy to be preoccupied with the physical that we can see at the neglect of the spiritual we can't see. Right? I mean, uh, we see our foolish neighbor, Um, we see wicked people on television and and in the streets. And it's easy to be fixated on the physical that can be seen and forget the spiritual that's behind the scenes. Now, these these are reasons that I tend to belittle or think too little of spiritual warfare. Another one would be this. Secondly, many Christians abuse the topic which tempts us to err in the opposite direction, right? I mean, our charismatic brethren, they tend to attribute everything to the devil and to demons. Uh, Every uh, immoral activity is a demon, right? You have to cast out that demon of gluttony or whatever other sin it is that's in you. And uh, that's really, in some sense, a passing the buck away from Ourselves to the devil, and because certain Christians put so much em- a, a wrong emphasis, a bad theological emphasis upon spiritual warfare, we tend to err on the opposite side. Well, that's the charismatics that talks about these things. Well, may I remind you, brethren, that the Apostle Paul or uh, the Apostle John was far from a charismatic, and yet he has a very robust theology here of. Demonology, and so does Paul, doesn't he, in the other text, and Jesus. Another reason is kind of tied to the previous, and that is unbelief. We simply, our faith is so weak that it's hard for us, if we're to be honest, to really enter into the notion of spiritual warfare, because we're just not clear-minded. And we're not thinking as we ought to think. Well, for all of those reasons and others, I suggest that we as Christians tend to oftentimes think of spiritual warfare too little. And somebody says, well, that's your Reformed theology that makes you do that. Well, John was Reformed. Paul was Reformed. Jesus. And they all had a robust doctrine of devils. Furthermore, our tradition has some of the best books ever written on spiritual warfare. I didn't have the time to pull near one of them down from my shelves, but I wanted to. William Ganahl's is a classic, Christian in complete armor. Um, Brooks' Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices, and I can go right down the line. Our fathers wrote a lot about this because the Bible speaks about This. But we have to remember this world is controlled by Satan, who's the king of a demonic host all under God's sovereignty. To wrestle against spiritual hosts of wickedness means the fight is personal and up close. What else does it mean to wrestle? Right? I've never wrestled. I mean, you know, in high school, maybe you wrestled, or you've seen wrestlers, and uh, it was—it uh, necessitates a closeness. In fact, the, the Greek word translated "wrestle" it actually describes hand-to-hand combat. When you had to lay down your weapon, and it, you're you're close quarters, you have, a weapon's not going to help you. You just you might have a little dagger, but basically, you just got to use your hands, and you got to put your hands on the enemy. That's the imagery here, brethren. Christians wrestle, and they don't wrestle against flesh and blood. They wrestle against demons. That's the whole point here. Ephesians 6.16 sheds light, I think, upon the nature of these attacks. Paul speaks of the fiery darts of the wicked one. <coughs> fiery darts of the wicked one. These are, these are arrows dipped in pitch set ablaze, right? Right? fiery arrows fiery darts that come quick and cause harm and destruction and these i think are quick thoughts that enter our minds like flaming arrows and these these quick darting thoughts that potentially create Difficulty for our consciences might take various forms. Intense temptations or evil and blasphemous suggestions. But either way, they shoot through our minds like falling stars. And thus, I think in that way, can be distinguished from our own thoughts. You know, the difficulty... Oh, let me add another reason why we don't think of spiritual warfare to the degree that we ought is because it's difficult to, to, to understand the nature of it. It's hard to fathom how this works out. Demons and how they possess and oppress. And how can it even be that they can suggest thoughts but texts like, text like Ephesians 6.16, brethren, I want to say, or in fact I am going to say, demand us to think in terms of thoughts suggested to our minds. Because remember, demons are spiritual beings. They're not... Even though they can't possess us, they nevertheless can suggest thoughts to our minds. Surely, brethren, you know this in your experience. Perhaps you're driving and you see something and uh, there's from out of nowhere... A dart that flashes through your mind that takes the form of an evil, a strong temptation or an evil suggestion. Now it's possible because of our remaining corruption that it originated from within. But something that comes as, as it were from left field most likely is one of these flaming darts of the evil one. And thus, even if we didn't have Satan and the demons, we carry within our breasts the abilities to have all of these wicked temptations and suggestions within us. I think oftentimes, at least likely, we attribute to ourselves that which originates from our great enemy. And yet these texts also not only suggest to us the reality of demonic assault, but provide the remedy. The best way to resist these fiery darts is to stand steadfast in the faith or take the shield of faith. What are these but lies, perversions and lies? Remember, Satan's the father of lies. And how do you combat lies but, brethren, with the truth? And that's why Paul says to take the shield of faith. Take the shield of faith. And Peter says, resist him being steadfast in the faith. This simply means we have to stand upon the word. We can only put out the fiery darts of the evil one With the shield of faith. And by faith is meant faith in God's word. And it's not just merely quoting scripture. But it's believing scripture. Brother what else do we fight these fiery darts with? What else do we use to extinguish these fiery darts? But the holy, written, infallible word of God. And of course this can be illustrated, can in Jesus who appealed to the truth of scripture to defend himself from the fiery darts of the enemy. But Jesus didn't just quote scripture. He believed it. It's faith in God's word. And so we have the good news tonight, brethren, that though we be harassed by devils, we cannot be possessed by devils. Though we be harassed by devils, we cannot be destroyed by devils. And the reason being is God's name is written upon our foreheads. Well, we'll see next week, God willing, in verse 13, it just gets worse. Just gets worse for some while the others are preserved.